Our reading this morning is from Paul's letter to the Christians in Philippi, chapter 2, can be found on page 1179, page 1179. Philippians chapter 2, and we start at the first verse. If you have any encouragement for being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear God, we pray for that miracle that we experience each and every time we open your word and look to you. Would you speak, we pray. Speak not just with words of instruction, although we long to be instructed by you. Not just with words of rebuke, although we bow our knee before you, confess you as Lord, and welcome if you need to correct us. Not just with words of recreation, as your spirit moulds us afresh more into the life of Christ. Although how we long for that recreation. But with words of hope we pray. That not only we, but this whole world might hear and in hearing find life and freedom and hope. That your kingdom may come. For we ask in your name. Amen. Please do be seated. Well, it is really, really good to be with you. I have genuinely been looking forward to being with you since I've been in the diocese, which, believe it or not, is almost three years. I enjoy your fellowship, and particularly, I have to say, I enjoy uh, fellowship with Mike and with John and with Dim, who are three extraordinarily encouraging and gracious men of the gospel. So thank you for that. As we gather, we gather in real life. We gather in grief and in hope as we say goodbye to Ruth. And it's deeply moving to stand with you in that fellowship and be assured of my prayers as well. 
But we also gather, and let's just name these things, because when there are elephants striding around the room, it's always worth being aware of them, in really tricky times. And I have found in my own heart, if I'm completely vulnerable and honest with you, that I've approached this morning not only with hope, but also with a degree of nervousness. You see, the wider media tell you all sorts of things about me, and I've got no idea whether you believe them, even though I deeply believe them to be untrue. Not so much me as Mark Tanner, but me because I wear a purple shirt, because I'm a bishop in the Church of England. Even friends say to me, you're a bishop, maybe one day God will give you back your backbone. And it's sort of funny, unless you happen to be that bishop. So I approach with nervousness, not knowing quite what you will think of me. And if I'm honest, the wider media tell me all sorts of things about you. And I choose not to enter this place as if I am here on trial, but it's hard to completely escape from that place. And I name it not because I intend to succumb to it, but just because if there are elephants in the room... At least, if we recognise they're there, we might avoid getting some of our toes stepped on. And so what do I do when your vicar very naughtily breaks one of my golden rules? This is a joke before you get worried. (laughs) You see, one of my disciplines in life is I never choose my own passage to preach on. Since being a young boy, I came to faith when I was about 8 years old, uh, 10 years before that, when I was about 8 years old. And I started preaching when I was about 14 years old, and I've always taken the scriptures very seriously because they're the very center, or Christ is the center of my faith, but we see Christ revealed uh, through the scriptures. I have had this fear, this caution, that I will inadvertently recreate God in my own image. I always forget which philosopher it was, but it was one of them, and it wasn't Nietzsche, because I always say it was Nietzsche, and I always get corrected by the vicar of St. Mary's Upton who happens to be there every time I says it. Where are you, Nikki? Are you here? I don't know. Uh, But one of them said, in the beginning, God created man in his own image, and man has been repaying the favor ever since. And we just need to be quite cautious of that. So whenever somebody says to me, choose your own passage, I say, no, you choose it. But Mike said to me, choose your own passage, and for once in my life, I ducked my head and chose it. So where am I going to take you? I'm taking you, as you've already heard, back to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. And I do so because this is one of my caves as I think of them. As a teenager, I remember coming back to Psalm 119 where the psalmist says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I grew up in a tradition where we learned great chunks of the scripture. This is one of the passages that I learned. And I remember as a student uh, living for a while in that passage in 1 Kings 18:19, you know, where there's been the great showdown on top of Mount Carmel where Elijah has that kind of battle. And he says, right, I'm fed up with this. Let's just have it out. If, if your Baals and your Ashtaroth are the true gods, then get fire cooled down and all that stuff. And if they're not, then that's fine, but I'll show you what God... You remember what happens. And you remember afterwards that Queen Jezebel is just a little narked. That's a very modern translation of the Bible, but it's basically what it says. And she says, be the God... Sorry, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of theirs. And of course, when we read the text as a kind of bullish early 20-year-old bloke, you think, ah, bring it on, what gods are they then? Those are going to be the gods that I've just shown, you know, have no value at all on top of the mountain. But actually in the text, Elijah is terrified and runs for his life. 
He runs for 40 days across the desert, having been strengthened by just a little food that God has given to him. And after 40 days and 40 nights, which almost certainly is a kind of uh, metaphorical term in the Hebrew scriptures for a long time, it's a long journey, he comes to the mountain of God. And when he gets there, he goes into a cave. And when he comes out, there's the earthquake, wind and fire. The Lord's not in those things. And then there's the sound of silence. And I remember that passage speaking very deeply to me about what I did in times of trouble as a Christian. When my faith was shaken, even by things which others might look to me and say, well, it shouldn't be shaken by that really. What gods are they? They're the gods I've already dealt with on top of Mount Carmel. And knowing that I needed too to have those caves, those places where I could come back to. And for me, those are passages in the scripture. Psalm 40 is another. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the muddy place, the miry place, set my feet on a solid rock, gave me a new song to sing, a hymn of praise to my God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And even saying the words, I feel the encouragement growing within me. Friends, do not be ashamed if you come from a tradition which teaches you to learn the scriptures, but do come back to them. In the day when we all have our Bibles on here in multiple languages, it's so easy to look quickly, but it's not the same as hiding the word of God in your heart, as being one who will come back time and again, whatever life throws at you, to feast on this richest of all food, to shelter in the safest of all places. And so at this time, I find myself coming back repeatedly to these verses that Paul writes to the church in Philippi that would have been passed around the ancient Near East as the church of God sought encouragement in tricky times. And I'm going to tell you what I notice. And it's up to you, to be honest, how you judge me if you want to, and whether you find similar encouragement For I have to realize as I come back to this cave that my first responsibility is to my Lord and then to those who will have fellowship with me. And I say that not for any reason apart from to help you understand how I negotiate these times. So what do I see in this passage? Firstly, that it is all about Jesus. That it's all about Christ, his person, his work, And his intention. If you have any encouragement, encouragement from what? From being united with Christ. If you have any comfort from his love, this is all about the work that Jesus has done, is doing, and will do. And if you know anything about tenses in the Bible, you'll understand why I give you those three tenses. It's either about Christ or it's about nothing at all. One of the things that worries me most about the modern church is that we seem less and less confident of talking about Jesus. I mean, I really hope and suspect that's not true here in Hartford, but in general, we seem to be quite comfortable talking about church, moderately comfortable talking about God, and really uncomfortable talking about Jesus. In fact, somebody said to me the other day, um, say the other day, it was a couple of years back, they said, Bishop, will you stop talking so much about Jesus? And I said, no, I won't, but why does it make you uncomfortable? They said, it feels a bit too personal. We respect God more than that, and we don't call him by his first name. And I felt like saying, can I just introduce you to the good news? 
We are Jesus' people. My first job was as a youth worker in a church called Holy Trinity in Coventry. And back in the day, I used to play the guitar quite a lot. And I used to obviously lead worship in church, but also lead worship uh, for the uh, Sunday clubs, as we called them. And there was this little two-year-old who used to wander around, and every time he saw me, whether he saw me in church or supermarket or walking down the street or whatever, he would literally stop just where he was and go, man, sing Jesus, man, sing Jesus, with this massive grin on his face. And I always said, and I'd still think it really, if I had to choose what went on my gravestone, there'd be a great many worse things to have on your gravestone, wouldn't there? Man, sing Jesus. It is all about Jesus. And so we are to have the same mind, the same spirit, the same attitude as Christ did. What do you do when you find yourself in a situation where you do not know where to turn? You choose to be more like Christ. You allow your mind to rest on him, to dwell in his word, to feed on him. And when you do not know what else to do, you choose to cling on. I'm one of three in the birth family that I, well obviously five, got two parents as well, but three children in the birth family that I'm part of. I have a sister who's very similar age to myself and then a brother who actually texted me when I just stuck a photograph of my motorbike outside your church and said, I was there yesterday. He's also in ministry, does some stuff with Keswick and apparently there was a Keswick training day here. But Ben is 14 years younger than me. So when he was about 18 months, two years old, I would have been 15, 16, I just remember this experience of taking him Christmas shopping. Centre of Leicester we were living at the time. And it was the first time I had been in this massive crowd with a toddler. And you've probably been there loads of times, but I remember at this 15, 16-year-old, this first experience of being in such a crowded place that I couldn't see the human being whom I adored and for whom I was responsible but whom the crowd was trying to separate me from. And I gripped his hand and would not have let go even if you had pulled my arm off. And of course, we were reunited. There's no tragedy in this story. But I remember the Spirit of God, as it were, just highlighting in my thinking and praying that that is our calling as disciples. It is all about Christ, and we are to cling on and never let go. But this passage is profoundly realistic because it recognizes that we cannot and must not do this alone. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, and notice in the Greek that the you is plural. Now, sorry to get technical just for a moment, but most languages apart from English have two different words from you. They are the kind of you, do you know where um, the toilet is that I won't get stopped by the youth worker from? You know, if I get, in, incidentally, massive thumbs up. That's, I'm really, really chuffed. That's exactly the right thing to do. But it's a kind of you. I'm asking you a question. But then there's also, if I wanted to say, will you stand? Don't. That's not the instruction. I'm just giving an example. It wouldn't be you in the same way. It would be, would y'all stand? You plural stand. You singular, you plural. Most languages have two different words. To and vous, if you know your French. Uh, two different words. Almost all of the New Testament is written in plural form rather than singular form. Now, partly that's just simple language. Paul's writing to multiple people. But there's a theological point that underlines it as well, because discipleship was never intended to be done alone. And it is one of the things that we in our isolated, kind of atomized modern world need to remember when we read the scriptures. For example, when Peter says, be holy, for I, the Lord, am holy, he is not saying, or at least he's not mainly saying, Mike, you are to be holy. 
and then who else might I know the name of? And I can't. Anyway, anyway, whoever, you, whatever your name is, you are to be. It's not a singular command first and foremost, because holiness is set in the context of relationality. It's deeply easy to be holy by yourself, or at least it's relatively easy to be holy by yourself. The problem with my holiness comes when you walk into the room. I mean, I don't, nothing personal. But you kind of pig me off or lead me astray or what have you. That's when it's hard to be holy. But it's also when holiness transforms us. It's easy to love people when they're at the other end of a telephone line or whatever it happens to be. But when you have to live with them. It's easy to work out what you think the scriptures say. But when you gather with others who are serious about following Christ, that's when this instruction begins to take root. If you, plural, have any encouragement from being united with Christ... If any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the spirit, and he makes it explicit through that word common. If any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Like-minded as who? The Greek isn't any clearer than the English. Like-minded as each other or like-minded as Christ? Well, actually, I think the shape of the text is really clear. It starts with Christ and then comes to each other. Why? Because we have Christ's mind. It is, if you have any of this from Christ, then be like, be like, be like. And so we learn day by day to shape ourselves together in the image of Christ, which means that together we can be shaped in the image of Christ, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. There is a stark warning in the text here. We are to be constantly cautious of looking to our own interests, for that will always be the temptation of the human spirit. We are instinctively wired in this post-fall world to be people who are profoundly self-centered. And again, that's been true for all time. But in our materialistic, atomized, individual world, we need to recognize that it is a particular temptation in this day. But there is something in the way that Paul addresses that self-centeredness that we might rush past without noticing because of the fact that we are reading this text in translation. When Paul instructs us not to do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, verse 3, he says two things. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now, the word for other in verse 3 is different to the word for other in verse 4. You are in humility to value others. Alelaus is the word. It means each other, really, in the Greek. You are to value each other more highly than you value yourself. Not looking to your own, your own plural interests, but rather to the interests of heteros or heteroi, which is what we get kind of um, heterodoxy. Well, we don't get heterodoxy, but we get the word heterodoxy from or heterosexual. It means, it means other, it means stranger, it means different. Now, it's possible that I'm over-reading into the text here, but for me this has become really important because here is the key to a selfless church. As individuals, we are to value each other more than we value ourselves, 
And our shared interest is not to be our interest, but rather the interest of the other, of the stranger, of the outsider. So I, as a Christian in the church, value you as my sisters and brothers more than I value myself. And together, we value the other to us more than we value ourselves. Do you see the kind of uh, scaled up version of selflessness that's here in the text? And this is vital. For at the moment, the Church of England, you probably haven't noticed, but the Church of England is rather obsessed by internal politics. And in my prayer imagination, and I use that phrase because I find myself running out of words so quickly when I pray these days, and so I often find myself sitting in an imaginative space just talking to the Lord and sitting quietly holding things together. In my prayer imagination, the father puts down his mug of tea on the table because God's a good Yorkshireman and drinks tea. I think that's a joke. And he smites his forehead and he says to me, Mark, 1.5 million people. You see, I am bishop of the Diocese of Chester. In Chester Diocese today, there are roughly 1.65 million people. 1.65 million people. If 10%, which is the very highest estimate, have some kind of Christian faith, if 10% have that, that means that there are 1.5 million lost sheep today in this diocese. They will go to bed tonight without knowing the love, the hope, the peace, the grace, the joy, the freedom that you and I almost take for granted in the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly those of us who follow Christ for many, many decades. They are lost and they are alone and they are without hope in this world. That's what the scripture says. And there are one and a half million of them, 57 million in England today. And our task, if we are to follow Christ, is to value each other more highly than we value ourselves and to put their interests before our own. And this is the challenge of a lifetime. How do we do it? Well, rather irritatingly, I notice that I'm banging on for too long yet again. But it's all here in this passage. This is why this is such a cave to me. For we are to do as Christ did, by allowing our attitude, or better translation, really mindset, or kind of mindly wisdom, to be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But, again, the Greek kind of means emptied himself, made himself nothing, allowed himself to be hollowed out, in order that he could take human form and be with us. If mission doesn't feel like being stripped of many of the things that we hold most precious, and if mission doesn't feel like we are taken to the place of crucifixion for the sake of the other, then we must come back and live in this passage. For my fear, perhaps my biggest fear as I look at the church, including but not only the Church of England today, 
is that we have completely lost sight of this passage. That our expectation in practice is that others will pay the cost of our mission. That they need to become like us before we can actually share the hope that we have with them. 22 years ago I left this diocese, not in a huff, but just because the next job that I had was elsewhere. I went from being curate on the Wirral to being vicar of the Red Light District in Doncaster. I turned up in the parish quite convinced that I was God's gift to every single person in that parish, that within about 20 seconds there would be several thousand converts every single day, including what I would come to know as the 26 girls who worked our streets. It was three days after I'd been plumbed in to use the technical name for the induction service when somebody becomes a vicar. And I was walking down into town for a meeting and I had a clerical collar on. And behind me came the invitation, which I knew would be coming at some stage because I'm not a complete wally. Do you want any business? Asked this girl, whose name I would later come to know, but didn't at that stage. And I turned round and the situation should have been fine because I had 10 or 15 absolutely drop-dead evangelistic lines prepared. And in my imagination, she would have heard the first of them and fallen to her knees. And even if she had been remarkably resistant to the grace of Christ, it only would have taken two or three before she was sobbing, saying, lead me to life, I see the error of my ways. But what actually happened was that as I turned, my mind went completely blank, like completely blank, like so blank that she could have said to me, who's the Prime Minister? And I would have said, I've got no idea, and it's not because we've had 57 in the last 12 months at that stage. And I looked at her, and she looked at me, and after what felt like 15 years, she said, well... And in the pressure of the moment, I came out with just the best line. If you want to write it down and use it, it's not copyright. You can use it if you want to. Because I said, not me, I'm the vicar. (laughs) To which she replied, that's all right, love. I've had plenty of them. I'm not making this up. This is genuinely true. And I said, well, you're not having me. And I ran away down the street, feeling myself to be an utter failure recognising that one of the key missional foci of the parish that I was now incumbent of was one that I would never be able to lead on because I'm male. And we spent the next five years developing ways in which we were able to sit on the streets alongside the prostitutes and take the gospel to them where they were so that we paid the cost of mission rather than expecting them to pay the cost of mission. That's what it means to follow a crucified saviour, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. The thing about a servant is that it's all about the one served rather than the one doing serving. And for me, I have a mental checklist every time I go into difficult situations and I seem to spend my life in them. And this gets harder, I have to say, as a bishop, not easier. But I ask myself, am I more interested in what I am saying or in what they are saying? Am I more interested in my priorities or their priorities? Am I more interested in my way of doing things or their way of doing things? Because if I will follow Christ, I must come into this room as a servant. And I'll never claim to be very good at it. 
but I will tell you this is one of my caves to which I cling. And it's in this place that we can come to the cross. And it's at the cross that we find life and we find hope. And we find that in God's extraordinary rich grace, he takes what should have been our moment of deepest shame, greatest despair and utter hopelessness. And in that place, he manages to work life and hope and grace. What extraordinary wisdom and power it is that the very moment when humanity takes their creator and seeks to put them to death can be the place in which that creator opens the door to forgiveness and freedom and hope. But this is the cross, my sisters, my brothers. And this is where this passage leads us to. And there is no other place that we will find life Because there is no other Lord, there is no other way, and there is no other hope but our Lord Jesus Christ. And on the other side of the cross, well, on the other side of the cross, there is the most extraordinary grace. God has exalted him, that is Jesus, to the highest place and given him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But for now, we don't spend the entirety of our lives with him in that place. We will do. He is coming back, and the kingdom will be here in all its fullness. For now, the challenge is real and urgent, and it has one and a half million faces within 50 miles of where we sit right now. How do we do it? We value each other more than ourselves and we look to the interest of the other. And we let our attitude be the same as that that was in Christ Jesus, although it's the costliest thing that you ever will have done. What's the takeaway from this? Well, only you and Jesus can fully know that. But I do want to make one possible takeaway explicit before I sit down. And that is to those of you who have never decided to follow this Christ, who hear me speaking about the way in which I seek falteringly and imperfectly, but seek nonetheless to shape my life, and I guess implicitly encourage you to shape yours, and think... I want that. Sounds like the hardest thing I'll ever do. But I glimpse there's meaning and hope here. And if you're sitting here this morning or if you're with us online, you are just as welcome as others. Please don't ignore the tapping of the Spirit of God. For at the cross we see history changed. We see life opened up. We see the way of God laid out before us. Here is hope, won and written in the blood of Christ. And if you would like to know more, well, talk to the person you've come with. And if you haven't come with anyone, grab Mike. He's a good bloke. He loves Jesus. And he'll explain it all to you. God bless. Amen.